way, Andrew. Thank you for being here. It's good to have you back. No problem. It's a blessing. Not that uh, Jim and Lois and Ganell don't do a good job, but it's nice to have you here. Because you guys do a great job. Still like to have you here. Thank you for ministering. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 16. I'll try to look at you guys. I don't know if I'm going to be able to much, just so you're aware. Kind of hard for me to turn, of course. Let's have a word of prayer, Lord. Thank you again for the opportunity that we can be together, that we can worship corporately. We are here this morning, not primarily because we chose to be here. We are here this morning because you have called us. You have redeemed us. You have made us alive, given us a heart that longs to worship you and to know you and to glory in you. So help us this morning, as we spend time looking at your word, that we will be reminded of you, Jerry Trace, that we will be reminded of your, of your gospel and your grace and your mercy towards us. And so, Lord, work in us and through us. And help me to speak accurately and correctly, and that you be glorified in the message. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to be wrapping up Acts chapter 16 this, this morning. So you can turn to Acts 16. Um, before we read the text, a couple of things I want to say. Obviously, we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's ministry in Philippi. That is, his physical ministry in Philippi. Obviously, years later, he's going to write a letter to the Philippian church that we call the book of Philippians. However, this is the wrapping up time of his actual ministry in the, this town of Philippi. Um, one of the things that's challenging sometimes when you study a text is the, um, especially when it's a narrative, especially when it's a historical narrative text like this is, and a lot of acts is, sometimes you end up with a disparate grouping of teachings in, in the text that seemingly aren't really connected, but they're important to observe. Does that make sense? Now, I think they are connected. I'm going to try to connect the dots for you because I think there's four things that are really being presented in these short five verses or six verses. Um, that oftentimes as we read through the text, we'll come to the conclusion and we'll kind of just look at it, acknowledge what it says, and move on to the next part of the storyline in chapter 17. And I think we need to pause and recognize there's some really important things we need to observe here. So I'm going to give you four observations. I think there's probably more than that that we need to see. But I'm going to give you four observations that we need to see. I'm going to try to connect all four together. They're going to initially sound really disconnected, but they really are not. And... Um, and then we're going to wrap them all up. So I wanted to fill you in on where we're headed. So we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 40 this morning of chapter 16. Again, it's the end conclusion of, of the storyline in the book, in the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the town of Philippi. Starting in verse 35, he says, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent you sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so then from there, in chapter 17, they move on. 
into other, uh, other towns where they're going to minister. So Acts chapter 16, verses 35 through 40. Again, as I just said, we're going to look at four seemingly disconnected observations and try to bring them together and, and show that they're actually really important observations for us to recognize, and they're all absolutely intertwined. You'll remember in the storyline that uh, Paul and Silas um, went to Philippi because they received the Macedonian call, and they went over to minister in Macedonia, and the first place they really came to was Philippi, and they ministered there. You'll remember that they didn't have a whole lot of success, uh, seemingly. Um, there was Lydia, and then later on, after they get thrown in prison, there is uh, the jailer and his family, his household, but that's all we have identified. There may very well be been some more. Uh, most likely there were a few more, not many, but a few more in Paul's ministry in town, uh, but they don't identify anybody specifically. And then you remember the storyline, there's an earthquake, the, their bonds, their, their chains fall off, the stocks fall off their feet, the doors fly open, not just for them, but for all the prisoners that are there. And as we talked about before, the jailer uh, was going to kill himself because he knew that it was either he killed himself or they're going to kill him in a gruesome way. That is not the prisoners, but the authorities over him, the Roman authorities over him. And so he was going to kill himself. Paul realized that, hollered out, don't do that. We're all here. You remember last week, I think it was, that we said that was not Paul and Silas keeping them there at all. And everybody says it's Paul and Silas keeping them there. Two people who are beaten to smithereens, and they're going to keep prisoners in jail? I don't think so. They're being kept in jail because Paul and Silas were praying and singing the gospel. That's why they're there. The Spirit is at work in them. That's why they're there. So we know that most likely there's some converts among the, the prisoners that are there as well that make up the early church that we know as the, the book of uh, the church in Philippi, that the book of uh, Philippians was written to, most likely that is the case. So after that happens, the Philippi, uh, the, the jailer and, and his family are baptized. The jailer gets saved. The, I would argue, as we said last week, that the family or household that, that, that are there are uh, that are baptized were already believers. They rejoice. You saw, you saw in verse 34 that he had believed God. It's not that they believe God, he believed God, which implies that they were already believers, perhaps through Paul's earlier ministry in, in the city of Philippi before, uh, before the arrest and, and uh, being thrown in prison. That brings us up to date to verse 35. What is really interesting in 35 through 40, remember I said there's going to be four observations that I'm going to point out to you. The first observation I think is absolutely necessary that we recognize is this. There is a complete contrast that must be observed. And the complete contrast is between the jailer and the magistrates. And you could also add in with the magistrates, the magistrates and the police, or I think King James says the sergeants, doesn't it, Jim? In verse 35? The sergeants? Yeah. The sergeants, yes. Sergeants is probably actually a better translation than police. And we'll see that in just a second. Um, but the, the interesting contrast, I would argue, and one of the primary purposes of Acts 16, 35 through 40, is to develop the contrast between the jailer and the uh, contrasted with 
the magistrates and the police or the sergeants. Who are these police? Who are these sergeants? It's interesting, the word that Paul chooses here is not generic. It is specifically referencing the very people who the night before, the evening before, actually physically beat Paul and Silas. It's the exact same people. Same ones that beat them. It's not just generic police. These are people who have been involved from the beginning. So that you have the magistrates involved from the beginning. You have these sergeants or police involved from the beginning through the whole process. The contrast is stunning in 35 through 40 versus um, the storyline in 25 through 34, the jailer. Remember the story. The jailer is following orders, right? That's all he's doing is following orders. They said lock him up and make sure it's secure. So he does what? He puts them in the inner in the inner jail, and he puts stocks on their feet as well as bonds on their chains on their wrists. So they're thoroughly secured. He's doing his job. And then the earthquake comes, and everything falls off. His response, once he finds out that, that uh, they, none of them have escaped, is he falls on his face before Paul and Silas. And when Paul and Silas talk to him, his response is what? What must, must I, I do to be saved? A clear demonstration of repentance. The gospel has had its work. Where did he hear the gospel? Through the singing and praying, right? They were singing and praying the gospel. We talked about it last week. They were not singing and praying, please set us free. I mean, please heal my wounds. They're singing and praying the gospel. That so impacted the jailers and, I'm sorry, the jailer and the prisoners that the response from the jailer at least, probably prisoners as well, is what must I do to be saved? And then Paul goes on and he lays out the gospel even more clearly. And the jailer repents and believes and is gloriously saved and is baptized. What do we find in 35 through 40? Listen to it again. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. It's an interesting statement in 35. They've been thrown in prison. There was no trial. There was no conviction. It was just getting beaten and thrown in prison. We don't have any data about why they decided to release them. Don't know. There's no data given about the change of heart. It could very well be that in the middle of the night, the magistrates were talking about it and thinking about it afterwards, saying, you know what? We were drawn in by the raucous crowd. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's a rebellion on hand, right? The place is up for grabs. And so they respond with the purpose of appeasing the crowd. That makes sense. Could very well be in the middle of the night, they're like, oh, man, this is really... Not a good thing. We shouldn't have thrown in prison. It could be any number of reasons. The simple matter of fact is the data we have is they came to the conclusion somewhere in the night, we need to let these people go. We need to let these two go. And so Wednesday, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer, now we get the magistrates and the jailer closely tied together. The jailer, it says... 
the jailer reported these words say to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, now come out. So obviously the jailer put him back in prison if we clean him up, right? They're back in prison because that's his job. Puts him back in prison. But he says... The magistrates have let you go, have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and notice how, how the jailer puts it. Go in peace. Go in peace is another way of saying go blessed. Your honor is restored, as it were, so to speak. But it's an interesting contrast because the jailer goes, right? Now he goes with these sergeants, but he goes to him. Where's the magistrates? They're back in their place of work, right? They don't come. They send the, the sergeants to go. It's interesting that you get the sense right off the bat in 35 and 36 that the attitude of the magistrates and the attitude of the jailer is radically different, especially when you know the background in 30, uh, 25 to 34. You know the perspective, the attitude, the heart of the jailer is a heart of love, isn't it? Love. Unitedness with Paul and Silas. There's a unity between Paul and Silas and the jailer. So when he hears that they're letting him go, the jailer runs to him right away and says, hey, they let they, they sent to let you go, so come on out. Let's go. It's time for you to leave in peace. And he merely means leave from the jail cell. Jail cell. It's time to leave the jail, right? The contrast becomes really interesting in 37 and following. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Notice he throws that in right now, not before. We'll talk about that in a few seconds. And thrown us into prison, and now, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Verse 38, the police reported these words. So the sergeants went back to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Why were they so afraid? Well, because by Roman law, it was illegal to flog or beat a Roman citizen. It's also illegal to throw a Roman citizen in jail without a trial. And in fact, historically, there are towns, historically in the Roman, we know it for sure, there are towns in the, in the old Roman Empire that actually lost all their status because they did that very thing. And we know that there were many people, many leaders and rulers in small areas and towns and, and areas that actually were killed by the hier hierarchy of the Roman government when they mistreated a Roman citizen. This is a really serious thing. It is really serious. How did the magistrates respond? They came running, didn't they? They came running, and the scriptures tell us they apologized to Paul and Silas, didn't they? But what's the difference between this, the, the jailer and the magistrates? Now, watch it closely, because it's not what you think. It's really easy to say one, merely one is a really genuine heart repentance, right? And the other one's not. The other one's terrified of consequences, apology, right? But it's deeper than that. 
And this is really what's important in this text. One of the, one of the four observations that's very important is this. It's not just the repentance is different, although the repentance is different. What it really is, the good news is different. Is different. You see, the good news for the jailer is what? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the jailer is hopelessly condemned because of his sin, because he is a, he is a hater of God, and he's turned his own way, and he's gone astray. He's mocked and ridiculed God all his life. He's rejected Jesus. And the change, the repentance, is because the Spirit is at work enlivening him so that he sees the gospel for what it is. Does that make sense so far? I suspect that the, that the magistrates had heard the gospel because Paul and Silas are not shy about the gospel, are they? But what is their good news? Free. You're free. Yeah. Please leave and don't tell anybody is the implication. Don't tell anybody what we did because we don't want to die. And we don't want our city to lose its status. But especially, personally, we don't want to die. That's what it is. We don't want to be killed. We don't want to die. We don't want to lose our position. Their good news is a based upon a hope that Paul and Silas actually would leave and not report them. Their good news is if we can live another day and still be magistrates. That's their good news. The contrast is one of temporal versus eternal. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? We look not at what is temporal but what is eternal or what is not seen we look at what is what is unseen not what is not seen not what is seen but what is unseen look but you get the point because what's seen is is fleeting isn't it it's fleeting the perspective of the jailer not because he's a better person not because he figured it out but the perspective of the jailer because the spirit is at work in him, making him alive, is that he sees what is truly good news. Is there any good news with the magistrate? No. No. Because even if Paul and Silas don't report it, what's going to happen to them? Still going to go to hell. Not they're still going to die. They're still going to go to hell. And ultimately... What's going to happen, not just to Philippi, but the, but, but the whole Roman Empire? Falling down. It's all going to come to pieces. It's all temporary. It's all temporary. What is the change that is substantive? What is the change that is powerful? What is the thing that, the only thing that alters someone's life? <coughs> it is only the gospel. That is it. That is it. You can even see it in Lydia, can't you? Before Lydia come, came to faith in Christ, what was, what, was, what was so important to her? Selling her fabrics. Selling her fabrics. Everything was about selling the fabrics and building the business. And then all of a sudden, she hears the gospel. And everything changes for her. Paul and Silas, or I'm sorry, Paul, Saul, 
all that was important to him was what? Being a good Pharisee and persecuting the church. And then the gospel has an effect in his life, and what happens? Changes everything. Everything. And that's what you see with the jailer as well. The jailer, do you recognize the jailer even in front of these even in front of these magistrates, sorry, even in front of these, first of all, the, the police, the sergeant, and then later on when the magistrates come with them, he's demonstrating his loyalty to who? To Jesus. And in light of being loyal to Jesus, he's clearly demonstrating his loyalty and unitedness with Paul and Silas. And clearly he has because anybody who looks can see he's cleaned up and they've developed a deep intimacy overnight. It's very clear. So the contrasting repentance is stunning to see. And this contrasting repentance we see in 35 through 40 is because one has the true good news and the other one has absolutely rejected it and embraced a false good news. And the evidence is very clear. And I think that's the important part about it. When we look at the responses, the evidence ultimately always becomes clear. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is this. Your gospel will be demonstrated just like it did to the jailer and the magistrates. Your gospel, that is the gospel you embrace, either the true gospel or not the gospel, will always evidence itself in our lives. It always will. Every time. It may take a little time, but it will always evidence itself. The true gospel always will. It's inevitable. If I could just make me as contemporary as I possibly can be, Ruth and I were talking about this the other day, if I could be as contemporary as I possibly can be, for example, we are in the time frame now that we all know in America as the election season. And I see Christians' wheels coming off everywhere. I see the wheels coming off. Because they're afraid of something. You know what they're afraid of? You know what they're afraid of? It's really easy. They're afraid of the person they don't want to win is going to win the election. It's going to get more votes and get the Electoral College and win. <coughs> and it's consuming them. I see it everywhere. Excuse me for talking politically for a second. Okay. <coughs> There's a point to this. Can I just ask you a quick question? Do you see the wheels coming off for Paul with regard to Nero? Do you see it anywhere in here? Do you? Do you see the wheels coming off for Jesus because of Herod? Anywhere in here? Forget. Don't forget Jesus, but you get the point. Lay him aside for a second. Lay Paul aside for a second. Do you see it anywhere with anybody? Anybody in here? Do you see the wheels coming off because of the elected officials? No. You know why Why the wheels aren't coming off for Paul? You know why? Because he knows the gospel. And, and, and he believes the gospel. And he believes that if the gospel is true, and if the God of the gospel is true, the God of the gospel is in control, isn't he? He's good, isn't he? Isn't he? 
And he's trustworthy, isn't he? And I'm just using, that is just an example. I'm not trying to preach politics here. Because you know I don't do that. My point is that we evidence, and this is the reason why I bring it up, we evidence what gospel we really believe in by what consumes us, by what controls us, by what controls the trajectory of our lives, by what focuses us, by what ultimately really moves us. That always will demonstrate what our gospel is. Does that mean we're just absolutely ambivalent over gospel, over, the, over politics? Maybe, maybe not. The point is, whether you like politics or don't, the point is, what's your gospel? Again, gospel is just, I mean, the, the politics is just the example. The observation here is stunning. For the jailer, the gospel has transformed him. For Paul, the gospel has transformed him. For Lydia, the gospel has transformed him. For Silas, the gospel has transformed him. For Luke, the gospel has transformed him. And the transformation is continuing. That's what we see, isn't it? Throughout the scriptures. Everywhere we see that. Observation number one is the contrasting repentance is very, very instructive. This is going to sound like an aside, but it really isn't. I want to talk about something that's going to be really controversial. And it's going to be brief, but it's going to be really controversial. And it's going to sound like it flies directly in the face of everything I just said, but it doesn't. It is a study, if I can put it this way, there is a study in this text of rebellion. And I think it's really important that we see it. Crucial that we see it. I think it all ties together. Did you see the rebellion in the text? What's the rebellion in the text? Well, the magistrates sent the, the sergeants or the police and said, let those men go. And they came with the jailer and reported the words of Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us into prison, and do they now... Throw us out secretly. What's the next word in the NAS? Or I'm sorry, the uh, ESV. No. You can't miss the point. That's rebellion. They just told the jailer and, and the police and magistrates, no. And then the boldness and arrogance let them come themselves to take us out. A really interesting statement. And then, verse 40, there's more rebellion. Because what did they say? Leave the city. And what did they do? They went to Lydia's house. <laughs> what you see Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy doing is rejecting it. They're rebelling. I bring this up for several reasons, because I think you'll find this throughout the scriptures. There are often times when you will see you know, we hear, oftentimes we'll say in the scriptures, well, you know, you just got to obey. The Bible says obey the authorities over you, right? And it does. Right? Mm -hmm. It says that. But here you've got Paul saying no. And then when they tell them to leave, they don't leave. But they are the authorities over them, aren't they? Yes. 
then you have earlier in chapter 12, you have Peter being released by the angel out of prison, right? And then Herod finds out about it, and he looks all over the area trying to find him. He sends search parties out trying to find him. What does Peter do? He's a really good Christian, so he turns himself in. Right? Now, what does he do? He runs away. That sounds like rebellion to me. That's what it sounds like. And there's many other examples of this. I bring it up to point out what is obvious in the text. There's some rebellion going on here. Paul and Silas are speaking really strongly to the magistrates, those who are in authority over them. The ones that God had placed in authority over them. He's speaking very strongly to them. Isn't he? He absolutely is. And then ultimately, doesn't do what, they, what he tells them to do. He believes it is good time. Well, how do we deal with that? Because certainly the Bible tells us to obey those in authority over us. It says it several times, as a matter of fact. But you know, it's really interesting. Oftentimes there'll be general statements in the scriptures general declarations about this is wrong, and you find other places in scriptures where they're doing what it says is wrong. Really interesting. What do you do with that? Is Paul and Silas sinning here? No. Did Peter sin by avoiding? No. What's going on here? Once again, what is trumping this, <coughs> these magistrates? What's trumping the magistrates is the thing that's most important. And the thing that's most important is what? The gospel. See, what's going on with, with, with Paul and Silas here is really important. They were beaten publicly because they were preaching the gospel. And the vast majority of the town of Philippi knew they were preaching the gospel. Some people had repented and believed. Not many, but some. In sending them away secretly, there's going to be a fledgling church in the town. And what do you think the people in the town are going to be thinking about the fledgling believers in the town if they're sent away privately and secretly? Are they going to remember that they were released if they're sent away privately and secretly, or are they going to remember the thing that happened the night before? The beating, the condemnation, the magistrates agreeing that it's, what they're doing is evil and beating them and throwing them in prison. Is that not what they will remember? That's exactly what they're going to remember. And so Paul says, no, absolutely not. You're going to come here and you're going to publicly declare that these things were wrong. And so what do the magistrates do? Not because of the gospel, but for their own neck. They come and they publicly apologize before Paul and Silas. And you know, anywhere that 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 um, that government officials go to, there's other people that go with them. Even in that day, just like it is today, and the word echoed fast that 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 they were wrong and that they corrected it. And that would do well for this fledgling church, because it's an insignificant, tiny little church. And so that's exactly what happens here. But it is important to recognize, important to recognize that, it, that life is not as clear-cut always as God says, blank, so that. 
We've got to take the whole counsel of God into account. Does that make sense? But in this case, again, just like we saw in the first point, the contrasting repentance is all about the gospel, true gospel versus false gospel. False gospel, gospel has to bow, doesn't it? False gospel has to bow to true gospel, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. False gospel bows to true gospel, to the correct gospel, to the only good news. Then in light of that one, then it becomes very interesting. Third observation. I've already mentioned it, but third observation. So verse 39, they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. By the way, the ESV translates it, ask them to leave. It actually literally means begs them to leave. Yeah, begs them to leave. And it's an ongoing, please, please, you got to leave now. They just want to be done with it all. Verse 40, as I just said, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We don't know how long they were there with Lydia and the brothers. We don't have a clue. It could have been the rest of the day. It could have been a few days. We don't know. It just doesn't say. We don't have the data. I suspect it was probably at least throughout that day and into the next day. Because they wouldn't have traveled at night. They needed to heal up. Also. And they needed to heal up. So they could have been there a little longer yet. Could have been, could have been a week. We don't know. The point of the matter is, we have an interesting um, observation of a study in ministry. And I think this is, and again, this is very, very gospel related. Put yourself in Paul and Silas's shoes. You've been beaten. You had the stuffing beaten out of you. You've been thrown in prison. You've been released. Okay? And you have, and you have um, been, been exonerated. But you also know the magistrates are kind of fickle, aren't they? Aren't they? They're not kind of fickle. They're really fickle. They turned on a dime because of what? Because of fear of the crowd, right? What's to stop them from turning on a dime again? Because their repentance is not real, right? Because it's not based on the gospel. What's stopping them to turning again and throwing back into prison again? Nothing. Absolutely Nothing. As a matter of fact, what would make most sense to them? Because they don't have a promise from Paul and Silas that they're not, not going to turn them in, right? Paul and Silas didn't give any promise at all. Well, it makes most most sense that they have to kill, cover up the cover up the data, right? Cover cover up the evidence. Isn't that the way of things? That's absolutely the way of things. How it works this present day, all the time. So, wouldn't it make most sense? Even though they've been beaten up badly, wouldn't it make most sense just to get out? Wouldn't it? The juice isn't worth the squeeze here. What does Paul and Silas do? They stay. They stay and do what? They minister to this tiny little fledgling church that doesn't know him. How long? Probably not real long, but they stay. And what do they do? Well, the scriptures tell us. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And the idea, if, if you really think it through, that means that they visited Lydia. People who are also believers are doing what? They're coming over. That's going to take time too, right? I suspect the jailer's probably there with his family too. And maybe some of the other prisoners. Who knows? But anyway, the brothers come together. And what does Paul and Silas do? It says they encourage them. 
That is, what does that mean, you think? Don't lose heart. Exactly. They preach the gospel to them again, right? And they minister the word of God. They minister the gospel to them at great peril. You can't miss it. At great peril, they minister the gospel. We know that's Paul and Silas's MO, isn't it? In fact, you're going to see it in the next chapter. They minister the gospel to them repeatedly and over a period of time, reminding them this is what you need to cling to. This is what is important. This is what is valuable. And you can hear almost hear Paul and Silas saying, do not what? Do not fear. Do not lose heart. Do not, do not lose heart. Do not, do not give up. Press on. Strive. Cling to. No matter what. No cost is too high. Remember, you can almost hear Paul telling them, come outside the camp. Can't you? Hebrews chapter 12. Can't, can't you almost hear it, even though it's not stated? Can't you almost hear him saying, come outside the camp where he went outside the camp and suffered for you. This is your chance to suffer for him. Press on. Continue on. It's an interesting study in ministry. And this is not an anomaly because you see it everywhere. When we studied 2 Peter, you saw Peter do the exact same thing to people who were under severe persecution. His response was what? Pure and simply the gospel. He reminded them of Jesus. And he reminded them of Jesus' suffering. And he reminded them of the call that Jesus had on their life. And he reminded them of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Why? That's all we need. You see, we get so caught up in fear that if we would teleport ourselves, we would be able to teleport ourselves back to this day. And do you think that you would not have struggles with fear? My goodness, you're believing a lie. Because we would. And the answer for Paul and Silas is for a group of new believers. A group of new believers who know basically nothing is what? I want to remind you of the gospel. I just want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you what Jesus did, what he accomplished. Why? Because that is what removes fear. Remember what Paul says, perfect love casts out fear? As a matter of fact, Paul didn't say perfect love cast out fear. He said perfect love cast out all, all fear. That doesn't mean you have to have perfect love. It's Jesus' love cast out fear. Because Jesus' love is perfect and it casts out all fear. So it does. And so you know what people need? They need Jesus. And they need to be reminded of his love. And that's exactly in the study of ministry we see in the midst of Loads of opportunity to fear. Loads of uncertainty. Loads of, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Tomorrow, I may be in the same prison. And the, and the earthquake may not come. Tomorrow, Lydia, I may lose my, my job, my business. And everything I know. Everything. What do I need? I need the love of 
exactly what Paul is having to tell them. And you know what I find? If I may just be blunt, what I find is that's not what Christians are looking for when life is tough. That's not what we want. And when we try to encourage people with that, you know what the response oftentimes is? No. No. What's that? Leave my city. Yes. And that's coming from people who claim to be Christians. I had one person one time tell me, not in our church, this was someplace else. The person said, you're making it out to be way too simplistic. And it doesn't help me. And I told him, the reason why it doesn't help you is because you don't know the gospel. And you don't believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, it would be enough. It would be. It absolutely it's an amazing study in short six verses, an amazing study of the gospel and of ministry. And lastly, the last observation I want to give you in the text, I hope you're seeing they all tie together, even though they're really disparate observations. They all tie together because they're all linked by what? The gospel. The last observation I want to give you is they're leaving the city. Right? That's the observation. They're leaving the city. There hasn't been much success, has there? I mean, there's Lydia. There's a jailer. His family. Probably some prisoners. Maybe a few others. Yeah. They're brothers, it says. Yes. Brothers, brothers, plural. There's a few others. But there doesn't seem to be much of a success. And yet this whole ministry started out by what? With what? One person. Yeah, but before the one person, what did it start out with? Do you remember in chapter 15? I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 15? No, beginning of 16? On down to the river. Before then, before they even got there. They got run out of... No? Do you remember? The Macedonian... Call. The Macedonian call vision. Where... Paul has a vision, and in the vision, there's someone saying, what? Come help us. Come help us. What's the observation I'm trying to make? Well, it's the Macedonian call. Philippi is in Macedonia. What happens in 17 is continuing in the Macedonian area. And you find out for the most part in chapter 17, not much success. There's one point where there's success from man's perspective. There's one point where there's a lot of yield, so to speak, from man's perspective. But for the most part, you'd have to argue that, at least from today's standards, you'd have to argue that the ministry in, in Philippi at this point in time has been pretty much a bust. A couple people believe imprisonment, a cool rescue, and then leaving the city. And they go from there, and they're going to go from city to city to city, and for the most part, it's going to be Pretty unsuccessful, unspectacular, for the most part. And then they'll finally leave Macedonia. And you scratch your head and you read, what was that all about? If you read it carefully, you're going to come away saying, what was that all about? What in the world? I mean, it started out with a vision. Certainly, if I got this vision from God about ministry in Macedonia, certainly it's going to be spectacular, won't it? Now, you know what the reoccurring theme of the Macedonian ministry is? Suffering. That's the reoccurring theme. 
suffering. It shows up in a variety of ways, but suffering. So the last observation I'm going to make looks backwards and forwards. Because success is not based upon our perspective. It just isn't. The success in ministry is not based upon our, our, our perspective. And I don't say that just because I pastor a small church. I don't say that because of that. I say that because I see it in the scriptures. Success is what? What is, what is a biblical, the biblical definition of success in the scriptures? It is what? It is the gospel proclaimed, and for those who receive the gospel, they're inflamed by the gospel. And all that is by what? By God's doing, by the Holy Spirit. For Paul and Silas, he said it sums up so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What is Paul with us? One plants, one waters, but what? God yields the increase. One of the observations, the last observation I want to make in this text is a simple study of success. Success is not what we think it is. Or if I may quote Princess Bride, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Because success in the world is based upon a different gospel. It always is. Success in the world is based upon a different good news. I suspect when Paul left Philippi, he walked away saying, success. You know why? Not because of an earthquake. Not because he's not bound in prison. He said success because the gospel was proclaimed. He said success because the spirit was at work. Because the spirit was at work in the jailer and his family and a few others. And then in those towns that he goes to and nobody receives the gospel, I suspect Paul would walk away and say, success. You know why? Because he is faithful to the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed and the spirit did what the spirit intended to do. The spirit always does what he intends to do. Always. You can take it to the bank. In Paul's theology, it's really clear, even though Paul is the one who said it. Jesus said it. But in John, all the Father gives me is me. Success is faithful proclamation of the gospel, the Spirit doing what he's going to do, and loving and enjoying Christ. <clears throat> Glorifying him. And being satisfied with Four observations, seemingly initially very disparate from one another, but all of them are intricately bound together in something that's so important, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we could draw one thing out of those four observations, it would be this. Everything is centered on the gospel. Everything is centered on Jesus. Everything is centered on spreading his faith, bringing him glory. Whether I suffer or whether I, what? Whether I'm free, whether I'm imprisoned or free. Sound familiar? 
So I'm hungry, and when I'm full. Whether I have a lot or have nothing. And that's exactly what Paul said to the Philippian church. And the Philippian church had to, if they were thinking at all, had to remember the very start of the church. That's exactly what it was. And that is the gospel. God glorifying himself. Jesus Christ being proclaimed. His work is complete. And he has his work by the Spirit in people's lives. Even if it's only Paul. In this case, it was others. But it's all about the gospel. The question before us this evening, this morning, I'm sorry, is this. What gospel do we believe? Because that was where we started the contrast, right? What gospel do we believe? What's the evidence that we believe the right gospel? What are we caught up in? What controls us? What controls our perspective and our outlook? What motivates us? What causes us to respond? What drives us? What rules us? Is it a false gospel or is it a true gospel? I want to remind you that the false gospel ends up with people being accursed. But a true gospel transforms lives. Always does. And always will. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. There are false gospels being proclaimed everywhere, at all times, all around us. And it is very easy for us to be duped, to be just absolutely sucked in. And to become enthralled with all the wrong things. To become enthralled with passing things. Things that are passing away. It's very easy to become consumed with things that ultimately are not gospel. It's very easy to get a cold and stone hard heart. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to be after it today. After what today? After the gospel today? After Jesus today? while it's still today. Lord, I pray that we will have thoughts that are gospel-saturated, gospel-ruled thoughts and lives that are gospel-consumed lives as we worship you. In your name I pray. Amen.